thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. Digital Campus, episode 109, recorded November 14th, 2014. What do Fabio and Naked Laptops have in common? Hello, everyone. This is a very special edition of the Digital Campus podcast from the campus of George Mason University, the newly rechristened uh, Alan and Sally Merton Hall. Is that right? Um, Formerly the University Hall. Um, we are here to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Center for History and New Media. Very exciting. I think there's over 100 people here this weekend. Um, We have some scheduled talks today, Friday the 14th of November. We have had a kind of that campy unconference day where we've discussed um, many things from the history of the center, um, some great stories, Um, have been told. Maybe we will retell some of them for the podcast. Um, And also um, thinking through some of the things about digital humanities, its past, present, and future. Uh, I am Dan Cohen, by the way, former director of the Center for History and New Media. Um, To my left is the current director of the center. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Dan. And we have Tom Scheinfeld here from the regular crew. Hello. Hi, Dan. And Mills Kelly. Hi, Mills. Hey, Dan. This is great. I feel like Donahue here. I have a mic in my hand. Um, We have a wonderful audience who are currently coming up with questions for us, and we're probably going to invite some of those people up, whether they like it or not, to be part of the podcast um, as we speak. So I I just maybe we would start with a little discussion of what we've heard so far today um, at at the unconference. There were a number of um, good uh, uh, sessions. Um, I just came out of one on failure that Stephen, I know you were in as well. Um, what were some of the lessons that we heard about some of the projects that, that maybe didn't go well and what we can learn from that? Well, I don't know. I mean, you were telling the stories of the projects that, that, that didn't <laughs> go well. All my projects are, are the ones well, that failed? No, I'm saying there are no records of failure remaining in the centre. <laughs> we, we have redacted failure from the from the printed record. Um, I did go looking for it. Um, maybe we'll do the, the, the lessons from failure because I think one of the things that did come through is is part of what struck me reading the records that do remain of what's gone on in the centre in, in, in the past. And that's the, the really generative nature of the of the um, projects that we develop, and I'm stealing from my own talk that I'm delivering tomorrow that, that that I'm going to record. But I think some of, in some ways, the projects that have the lowest profile, that which is I don't really think a measure of failure, but perhaps one behind the scenes have been in fact some of the most productive for the centre's work. So we talked a little bit about yep. Echo, um, the project that brought you to the centre, um, and a lot of the early staff, um, in which 
probably is pretty low on most people's consciousness of centre yep. projects, but really did conceptually launch an enormous amount of the work that the centre did. The fact that the 9-11 project came out of that, a lot of people probably recognise, but a raft of other ideas that the centre built on um, flowed out of that project. And we again, we talked about that, that broadly generative character for a lot of what the centre's done um, and, the, and the kind of spine of projects that run through the centre. Um, a bit on Z where Zotero is now and where Omeka is now and on the way that those projects run through what's going on. And I think that that's, to me, is something we really need to bear in mind, that there are different ways in which projects succeed. And some of the more obvious measures of success often belie some broader um, conceptual successes that don't bubble up in metrics or anything else, but actually frame the work that goes forward. So I think to me that's an important lesson, you know, looking beyond the project and thinking about what it actually seeded and where it went and what ideas it, you had the opportunity to actually develop in those contexts and the, the joy in some ways of projects with more room to move um, versus stricter deliverables in terms yeah. of what they can really give birth to. Yeah, I think, um, you know, something else that came across in that in the discussion of ECHO, which was our History of Science project, uh, very early on, began in 2001, were just how many people actually in this room that we are looking out across and then who have come through the center um, were a part of that project and, and or participated in workshops. Um, we, we sort of went through a list of these people who are now at many other um, digital humanity centers um, or have done digital uh, work um, in important places. So uh, it really was critical, I think, behind the scenes as a thread. And uh, I think the center in general, we could say that uh, in general, the center, surely there have been 200 people who've had a position here at the center over the past 20 years, maybe more, 250. Um, and uh, you can just think about that as a very large family of people who've experienced some of these early projects that maybe didn't have huge web traffic, but that uh, a lot of people cut their teeth on. So that was... That was pretty good. Another thing, since um, it, Tom proposed a session but did not show up for it, so there's a failure on that on that point. That was a, a new a new C H and M failure. But something that we discussed, um, Tom, that I'd love your take on was um, we were trying to think of some things that we wanted to launch that didn't work out, and the history markers project came up. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, and then I'll I'll fill you in on our discussion on what what we thought happened with that project. Okay, it'll it'll be interesting, right? It'll be interesting to see what why 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 you all thought it failed. Um, if I could just before I answer that question, um, I just want to say with regard to Echo in particular, um, and something I'd like to sort of get on the record during this uh, this weekend, um, if it hasn't already been mentioned, is the kind of pivotal role that the Sloan Foundation played in the Center for the History. And now Josh is going to be thinking I'm buttering him up here, but I, I he's in the room, Josh Greenberg alumnus and uh, and now with the Sloan Foundation but but um, you know the center was um, was working on NEH grants and 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 was was very active but the, I think the Sloan Foundation funding came along at a very kind of particular moment and it was large enough and long enough in duration um, to allow the center to kind of build some capacity and to kind of and to have some of that um, more generative, more exploratory, uh, less de deliverables-driven um, kind of research uh, that allowed the center both to kind of grow institutionally, but also explore the frontiers of of, of digital humanities even before that term had come to come into to vogue. And so, so I just you know, I mean, Jesse Osabel at the at the Sloan Foundation um, and the foundation itself um, were, I think, incredibly pivotal in uh, in in the the 
to where we are now. Um, you know, in terms of the Markers Project, so the Markers Project was this idea, and I think actually Josh comes in here too. Um, we were talking probably at Roy's house one one evening um, about, uh, you know, I think we both had like a BlackBerry in our pockets or something. This was before the iPhone, um, uh, you know, even sort of just when text messaging was coming into vogue here in the States, um, which was after it coming into vogue in Europe and, and elsewhere. Uh, it was when, um, it was that moment when when cell phones had really, basically everyone had one in their pocket, um, but they didn't do very much yet. And we were talking about how we might use uh, this you know, new technology for the kind of work that we do. Um, and the idea of historical markers came out, that, these were, that this is a kind of location-based uh, uh, public history resource. And we have these location-based you know, mobile devices in our pockets. How can we connect these two things? Um, and we talked about things, um, you know, uh, you know, there was no GPS in these devices, but there was some um, locational uh, data that at least the the uh, emergency services had had uh, had access to, and kind of you know triangulation triangulation of cell towers. And so, how could we maybe um, draw on that? How could we deliver the text of these kind of historical markers? Are particularly good too because they uh, we thought because they have these kind of bite sized um, uh, uh, texts that could be delivered by text message. Um, and so it was very, and this was very early. This was 2004, probably yeah. 2005. Um, kind of a very early exploration into um, mobile, uh, uh, mobile digital history. And uh, so we wrote a couple of proposals to the Virginia Department of Transportation, which does fund. Um, what they call roadside enhancement programs, things like historical markers and other roadside exhibits and, and cultural uh, uh, exhibits, um, and were rejected at least twice uh, for that funding. Um, but it's interesting to look back at that proposal where the kind of grain of, you know, uh, 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 the next big thing um, was already there in CHM's uh, work. Um, and I, I, I really do think we were just kind of ahead of our time. If we had proposed that project, you know, in the year that the iPhone launched, two years later in 2007, um, my guess is that that project would have been funded. I remember going to a meeting uh, in Richmond with the, the the commissioners of the Board of Transportation to talk to them about this project, and you're know, talking about how we're going to deliver this information via cell phones and text message and. And as you're driving around, the phone is going to know where you are, and it's going to, you know, give you information about the the local history. And the, their eyes just glazed over. They had no, you know, it just it was completely foreign. Um, and just two years later, it would not have been completely foreign. So it was. It's an interesting. Um, I don't know what lesson is there, but maybe Dan, you can tell me what you guys. <laughs> I think you covered it really well. I mean, we did. I actually looked back in my email and. Indeed, we I think we had proposed or conceptualized it in the summer of 2004, and literally the technologies were like we we're going to use the WEP protocol <laughs> on on uh, it was recommended to us to use Sanyo phones, right? Um, right? right you know, yeah. I mean, they were like clamshell phones, and um, on some weird like system at the at the phone company. Um, and we you know we went through some cycles of trying to get it funded, and we kind of gave up. I actually looked at the date in July 2007. The iPhone had just come out 
two weeks earlier. <laughs> and uh, but but without the ability to make an app on it yet, so it was still it was still sort of more general. But um, but I think it was just like a, a, a period a of bad timing. Yeah, and uh, so I think I think the question of timing and and the things that the center has always sort of tracked new technologies and thought about the ways that they could be used in history, and then hopefully match those up, obviously with. Um, some funding to actually get these things off the ground, but sometimes those things just simply don't match up. So, um, so you were you were ahead of the curve, uh, but uh, the phones had to catch up with that. We, we also talked interestingly about the mismatch with with corporate culture in this story. So there was uh, Josh actually again in, in an impressive effort in kind of personal archiving, dug up the slide deck that you took down with you. Um, do you want to tell the slide deck story? That was actually for the phone company. Yeah, went to Sprint Nextel. that's right. Oh, I forgot the Sprint Nextel meeting. No, I, you know what? I don't, I, I, I barely recall it. So, Josh, you want to come up and tell the story? I'm, I'm downloading iWork 09 right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to now turn the subject to something else uh, from the conversations today, and that is that there's something I saw missing, and it's something I've seen missing from our conversations a lot, and that is undergraduate students. Um, so much of the work that we do in digital humanities is really about scholarship or about graduate students becoming digital scholars. And, um, you know, we had a little bit in one of the sessions this morning, we talked a little bit about working with undergrads and, and beginning to introduce them to this. But it strikes me that, you know, we're sort of at a point where um, increasing numbers of undergraduate students are technologically able enough that um, and inquisitive enough about the, the technology and, and history that, that, you know, the things that we were doing with graduate students 10 years ago and in some of our intro to digital history courses for grad students would be really appropriate for undergrads now. And, um, and I know a number of, uh, a bunch of institutions around the country have digital history sequences for undergrads, and I think it'd be really interesting to, to hear from some of those folks because it's starting to happen. But that's sort of, the, for me, one of the big projects of the next decade in, in digital humanities is to figure out the way that we migrate that down into the undergraduate curriculum more. So, uh, um, you know, just a, a few other, few of the other sessions. I was in, I was in two um, different sessions this, uh, this morning and this afternoon. Um, and again, you know, the great discussions. Um, in the first, we were talking about digital humanities um, center websites. Um, you know, the CHM is looking at in the, over the next months and um, possibly launching a redesign of its of, of its of its homepage. Um, and we were looking. Stephen and I were both in this session looking at um, examples from other digital humanities centers. Um, and I think one of the things that struck me in that discussion was just how similar the websites for digital humanities centers are. We we I think Stephen had the insight that you could almost swap out the main navigation bar of any digital humanities center and just add it to the web to the you know they're they're completely interchangeable um and that suggests something of a problem um to us that that uh maybe the 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 digital humanities center uh uh institutional website um needs some rethinking um so that was kind of a an interesting cross-cutting thing, you know, and looking and thinking deeply about this one center, um, the kind of kind of insights we've had about about some of the others. So I thought that was a yeah, and I think because that went with one of the interesting challenges in that discussion was thinking about centers versus projects, um, and that's very much the question that animates 
why we're rethinking, you know, what we want want the CH&M site to look like because at the moment we really do privilege projects and we share that with almost everybody else who puts um, together a centre page and and there are good reasons for that obviously but um, particularly at CH&M most of our projects have pretty strong presences of their own on their own sites and yep. and, and so the, so we're, we're giving them another kind of presence on our site at the expense of kind of burying in some ways, exactly what CHM is and who we are, and you know, and, and this has certainly been on my agenda since I've been at the centre because I spent a lot of time on the centre site before I got this job, trying to get my head around the centre and learnt almost nothing um, <laughs> from the site itself. And I mean, you know, I certainly, you know, you can learn a lot of other things from the site, but you know, in terms of actually working out what CHM is, um, that's not what the site's designed to do. And and again, you know, maybe that's not what a lot of centre sites feel that they want to do. But, you know, I think we had a really interesting discussion about sort of mission-first presentations of centres, and certainly at CH&M we have a clear sense of mission, um, but you wouldn't know. You'd have to dig around a little bit to find that mission on the site. And and, and so what's at kind of stake in in a mission based focus to a site and you know and so Tom was really kind of steering us to non-profit sites as models in some ways rather than than centre sites and I think we already have a meeting scheduled at the centre on Tuesday to discuss talking about that um, question and it'll be really interesting to canvas some more ideas about what in the end we think we should be presenting about the centre as a as a, a place as a group of people yeah. um, as something with a mission um, relative to the all of the work that we've done um, and and again like most people I don't think we really know who exactly is coming to our site for what purpose um, which again makes it hard for us to make in some way some decisions about what the audience for that should be but uh, the, you know in that sense it became pretty clear that there were no models amongst other centre sites because they largely look like our site at the moment um, and I think as Tom said that really suggests a problem and, and that maybe you know we need to stick our necks out and disrupt that a little bit. I, you know, I remember having these same conversations, you know, almost 15 years ago, <laughs> amazingly, um, uh, when we were trying to figure out if we could actually have distinct URLs for projects that the center was doing. I mean, um, the French Revolution site, which was one of our very early sites, dates back to, I think, 1996 or so. Um, so almost 20 years old now was very specifically put at CHNM, Center for History and New Media, .gmu.edu, slash revolution and it sat there for a long time rather than at frenchrevolution.org or some other url and it, i think it was a big deal for us when um we moved to the first domain and i don't i don't know if i can actually remember was it the 9-11 project yeah, it that might have been because of the collaboration with, with the, the american history. social history project um, where we decided to have an independent uh, URL and didn't have it under that. Um, and so I, I think we've always been trying to think through what, what it really means to be a center and be, in a sense, a, a kind of holding company for many other projects that really have their own identity. Some of them very, very strong and probably with communities that have no idea what's going on in the rest of the center. I mean, people, there are millions of people who use Zotero, go to Zotero.org, and, and they might see the logo there at the bottom as they would a corporate logo, but they wouldn't realize that the center does all these other wonderful things. And so um, I think that's, it'll be interesting to see how you square that circle, <laughs> Stephen. Um, I remember the last redesign. It's like, it's always, it's always a pain um, to do redesigns. Um, and, but maybe there's something new there that you can do. And I think it, what's interesting now is, um, 
we've always designed for the web. Maybe this is the first time for you to design for a kind of post-web environment where most people are going to come via devices that are not 15-inch screens like we have right now. Um, be interesting to any other session um, things we had. Good story time. There was a lot of tales of Fabio and Fabio's critical role in the founding of the center. Um, we will leave that as an exercise for the listener <laughs> to and figure fleas. out. <laughs> and the maybe fleas that used to. Fabio's <laughs> yes, right. Um, but maybe we will um, open up the floor at this point to take some questions, um, both about the Center for History and New Media's illustrious 20-year history and some of the issues and, and uh that have come up uh, during those two decades. Hello, Lisa Rohde. Hello. Um, so my name is Lisa Rohde. I'm the Associate Director for Research Projects at the Center. And one of the things that uh, I work on is scholarly communication at the Center. And this is, I think, something where the Center has played a leading role since its very beginning about reconceiving what we mean by scholarly communication. So um, I'm kind of interested to hear from the panel about how their thoughts about the way in which they convey their research and scholarship to a wider public have changed uh, since the beginning of the center or since you're at the beginning of your affiliation with the center till now. And um, what hasn't changed and why you think that is? Wow, that's a, a big meaty question. Well, I'll just, I'll, maybe I'll start by um, talking about actually in the one of the sessions I was in, um, a question came up about things that we've done that were unfunded that were important. And um, uh, what I brought up was that I think blogging in general has been a really important area for us. Um, we have a lot of staff members who have blogs who've written some really wonderful th things without um, you know the need to. <laughs> I don't know, have them peer reviewed or um, count toward any kind of promotion or tenure sort of thing. But th that constellation of CHM blogs has been so important. And I think by participating in the blogosphere, what was called the blogosphere, I guess, 10 years ago, um, I think clued a lot of us into um, new modes of web publishing and what that means, um, questions around, um, you know, publishing platforms, the role of publishers, the role of writers. Um, uh, what it means to have a community of scholars, those kinds of questions. So I think, I think that's an area that really um, led to a lot of things like the Press Forward Project, which you now run, um, came out of those kinds of questions of seeing that there was sort of organic um, scholarly communication happening on the web that was not accounted for in the traditional channels. So I don't know if others have feelings about that. Yeah, I, I just want to sort of second that because I, re I realized the other day that my blog just passed its ninth birthday, and that seems to me that's probably the most sustained form of communication that I've ever done, and <laughs> and I'm still writing for it. Not as much as I did, largely just because I've gotten a lot busier with other things, but but I still have that you know that impulse where there are things that I want to say, and in a you know in a scholarly critical way, but but not they're not susceptible to an article, and they're way too long for anything like Twitter. And so, so they, you know, I still use the blog a lot and, and, um, I'm surprised at the n number of hits that are still happening on various posts in the blog. I mean, I go back in every once in a while to look and see what are people going back to. And there are things that I wrote four or five years ago that somebody's sending people to somehow, or they're finding their way to through some kind of search. Um, and and so for me, blogging continues to be an important form of scholarly communication, and and I think will continue just because it's so. Um, it, it's in a it's in a just a really nice space 
for 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 thinking long form, longer form than a tweet, and um, and at the same time um, being very immediate. I mean, I just wanted to say something about kind of the other side of that. You know, I'm teaching the um, what we tend to call Clio One, what is called an introduction to history and new media, the first of our required sequence of graduate digital history courses here at Mason um, this semester, and. I think one of the things that's striking about that, it's digital history obviously, so in some ways it's not a, a cross-session example, but there is an enormous amount of blog posts on the syllabus for that course, you know, that in some ways when you're looking for where the key discussion has happened, where the key points have been made in digital history, more and more of those things turn out to be blog posts of various sorts. Some of that is Journal of Digital Humanities, another one of the things that Lisa's looking after at the moment, and that um, and 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 that kind of representation of that material, but a lot of it is just going back to blog posts that have kind of had a longer life. And I think that would actually be something very interesting to know a little bit more about, the blog posts that have longevity that continue to be fed back into the discussion, I think often by their assignment in, in courses. And so I think there's an interesting sense in which within, within digital history and digital humanities, more and more of the quote-unquote scholarship that we want to teach students is actually residing on blogs and it's helping, you know, put together a syllabus where my students buy no books and, and anything else because I can assign through a combination of articles but overwhelmingly blog posts the things that I think it's most in, important for them them to read. Now, I couldn't do that in another kind of course, but within digital history, I think that, that there's a real shift in, in, in what you need to read. But I'm also going to add, and this is from my own experience with Press Forward in the Global Perspectives on Digital History Project, and that is that what we're talking about now is a very American, British, to some degree, Australia, New Zealand form of communication, Canadian as well. So it's really an English-centric form of communication. Uh, one of the struggles that we had on Global Perspectives was people who were um, using a, you know, a, even a blog platform in German or in French or in Italian, the, the, the numbers writing the way that we were just describing, the kind of blog post that Stephen would assign on his syllabus, they're much harder to come by. It's not a, it's not a form that is ne nearly as heavily used by people outside of that kind of Anglo-American orbit. Um, and so it does then create this problem of um, when we're talking about, you know, in an educational uh, setting um, in a course, showing people this kind of work, you know, linking to those blog posts, but it's only from a small segment of the digital humanities community who are communicating with one another in, in other ways online, but, uh, but not in that sort of long-form blog post format, which we tend to like in the syllabus because it's something a little meatier and easier to dig into in a class discussion. Um, I, I would... I would I agree with everything that's been said, and I and and I guess I would also I would add a, a kind of another perspective. One of the things that I think the center has done um, throughout its twenty years um, is place a tremendous emphasis on design, um, and I think that comes in large part out of our sort of democratizing mission um, and our and our um, emphasis on reaching all kinds of audiences, um, depending on the project, of course. Um, and we have a we have a real always had have had a real emphasis on on the on the design of the project and put a lot of energy and and thinking and and, and resources into those. And um, in that respect, I think it's in some ways led the way in digital humanities um, 
uh, uh, in that regard. And um, I think we're starting to see that the 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 rest of the fields. I think we've seen the rest of the field has ha, has all other places have had this emphasis too. But I think especially with data driven scholarship, um, we're starting to see. Uh, other other parts of the academy, other parts of the scholarly communications world start to realize how important good design is for effective scholarly communication. And I think the center's made a really big contribution um, in that in that particular area. So um, that's the place where I think we've made a really important intervention in scholarly communication and hopefully will continue to. Great. Thanks for that question, Lisa. I think we have a question via Twitter. All right. Um, the question from Twitter uh, is from Amanda Schumann, and it is, I'd like to hear more about gender and diversity issue everyone's talking about, and what about problems of diversity more broadly, national borders, multilingual, disadvantaged groups, which we're just talking multilingual. Great. Um, so Amanda Schumann used to work at the center, which is great, um, and is now, I think, getting a PhD in Chinese uh, history. Um, so uh, great to get a question from afar from her. And um, it, we did, in fact, have a session on uh, gender um, and diversity. Uh, Tom, you were at the session. Do you want to say a little bit about um, some of the discussions and we can go from there? Sure. Uh, one of the four white males um, up here in front of the room will um, comment on gender and diversity. Um, yeah, but yes, we, we did have a, have a great discussion. And, and um, I know Sharon was also in the room. Um, if, if, if other people want to please come up and comment I, or it, let me know if I've got this wrong. Um, we did have a, uh, a good discussion. Um, I think the discussion was framed um, initially in terms of um, what the center has done right. I think um, that the center has always had um, a, a pretty good gender balance, um, and um, and women, especially in in leadership roles. So we sort of started with that with that as a as as a given. But we've also had our um, challenges over the years, and and one of them is. Um, Maybe uh, we've sort of we identified an imbalance in um, how the outside world perceives the center versus how um, the center actually operates, um, with maybe men um, playing a, a more or at least being seen as playing a more forward-facing role, um, and 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 women not as much. And so we talked through some of some of those issues, and then broadened the discussion to the rest of the field, dealing with issues of or at least raising questions of. Um, you know, are these same things at play in digital history versus digital literary criticism? Um, is, are these uh, same things uh, at play um, in at the DH conference versus that camps? Um, and trying to then, um, what, we, what we really spent most of the time doing was um, putting together a list of possible data sources um, that we might uh, mine for more information um, about um, gender and digital humanities because I think uh, a lot of our discussions um, have been pretty anecdotal um, in in that area without a lot of of hard uh, data um, and you know we all have a sense that we do some things well we do things some some things not as well we could do better um, but 
getting a, a grip on exactly what it is we do well, what it is we don't do quite so well, and then how we can move forward effectively, um, I think would, would be a great thing for the field. So we talked through how we might um, get that kind of research research done. But it was a good discussion. There's a Google Doc online. I encourage people to go, and um, we've tweeted about it. it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, people can go and, and look at that and, and contribute to it. Uh, and and we will, if you want to add your name to that um, doc, we can uh, keep you informed on you know if and 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 when uh, more we go forward with 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 more work on the on the topic. Great, thanks, Tom, for reporting back. I mean, I you know I can say from um, my perspective. I mean, I, I think Tom's right. We've um, we've had a good gender balance. I think internally as well. Roy's um, very non-hierarchical way of of establishing the center and running it meant that we have a kind of DNA where. Um, it really isn't top down. We have, um, I think, just across the board, even um, leaving aside the, the leadership uh, and, and senior positions, um, I think across the board, there's very much interaction between all the staff members and, and faculty um, in a way that I think has been very helpful. Um, having said that, certainly hasn't been perfect. Um, you know, I think um, uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, we, we've been a pretty white place, for instance, for a long time. Um, I, I feel that uh, um, that's something we, we could be doing better on, um, and that requires, I think, much more um, active sort of recruiting and, and also articulation of why that's important um, to our organizations. I certainly feel that in my new role at the, at the Digital Public Library of America as being something very important, so connecting up with other organizations where um, that make diversity a priority is something that I think would be critical to both of our organizations. Um, so I think just in just having it on the radar, I mean, I think what Roy was really good about is just being self-reflective as an organization, which is hard to do. And I think particularly in the area of digital-ish kinds of things, I mean, you look at computer science departments and, and, uh, and conferences, um, and especially out there in industry of things that do commercial entities that look like the Center for History and New Media tend to be very male and um, much worse off, not to give us a pass on those things, but I think um, I think if you compare what's going on and I think the whole programmer aesthetic that happens in Silicon Valley, I think CHM has pushed back, uh, at least in a helpful way, and, and in organizing conferences like that camp where there is great diversity, not just gender diversity, but also professional diversity where you have tenure line faculty um, meeting with librarians and museum professionals and graduate students and undergraduate students, I think has been a very helpful uh, development as a kind of conference setting that looks a lot different than your normal uh, tech-oriented conference. So long way to go, but I hope that you know CHM can be a big part of that. I think on um, other forms of diversity, accessibility, um, for instance, um, it's something we, you know we've thought a lot about and we've had projects that have had to do um, accessibility reviews for um, people with uh, print or um, auditory disabilities. Um, we've we've constantly sort of had to double back on that, and I think that's also an area that we, we probably could be more proactive on. But uh, it's uh, it's certainly something that we've looked at um, over the years, but probably needs again um, like general diversity in terms of the staff to be sort of written in as as part of in a sense the constitution of the actual organization. Other questions from the audience? Thank you for that. Yes. Actually, no, I might just chime in a little bit yeah. more on that. I mean, I have to say that one of the things that, that I, I found enormously 
attractive and impressive about the centre when I arrived here is that, you know, there are there are six leadership staff at the centre and five of them are women. Um, and I think even within any part of the academy, we would struggle to find that amount of leadership um, going on um, in the in at the level of of the directors. And I think that that is enormously to the credit of the centre going forward. The other axes of diversity, I think are quite striking given our context here in George Mason. So, you know, when I turned up here a year ago, I, I went to the provost's um, orientation for new faculty. And, and one of the things that's right at the top of what they tell you about Mason is that we are one of the most, de if not the most, diverse universities in the United States. Um, and in that sense, we sit somewhat oddly within our own institutional setting. And, and, and I think that that connects in interesting ways with what Mills was saying earlier on about undergraduate education. You know, one of our ways, most obvious ways forward to, to engaging with a more diverse um, audience is our own st undergraduate students here at Mason um, and increasingly like at a lot of campuses we now do have undergraduate research schemes Oscar is the one here at Mason that gives us an opportunity to actually draw on undergraduates and bring them into that work and I, I, I think if we're looking around for some ways that we can do something about that then then actually we should be pretty well situated here at Mason to tap uh, another a broad population now uh, you know, as Mills was reminding us in our most recent history department meeting, history as a major within that population is not very diverse. Um, and, you know, we tend to be a major of white men um, here at Mason. Um, and so it's going to be a broader reach um, than simply into the history department if, if, if we want to connect with the more diverse population of Mason. But, but you know, that does actually seem seem to be there. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think that the other thing that I would maybe pick up on is to connect the discussion we were just having about scholarly communication back to this issue. Um, in a way that I appreciate much more as I try to balance all of the things that Dan used to balance before and that everyone else balances at the centre, taking advantage of the of blogs and those things requires time that, that quite frankly a lot of staff at the centre don't have and you know and part of that earlier discussion just reading the Google Doc is about the challenge of actually giving staff like you know Sharon and Lisa the time to actually be people putting out things you know but part of my job is to be you know the sort of the outward facing part of the centre but one of the things that I've tried to do as far as is possible is try to make sure that we put some other people into those kinds of roles but you know one of the most practical obstacles to that is is what our folk just work so hard that that those kinds of opportunities are hard to come by and I think that there's a broader some broader questions about alt at work and 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 the way that we find time for staff and grant funded centers that that overlap with these kinds of gender questions and there are no simple answers to that but I think that you know we you know in a place where where we have at least gender diversity in our leadership we can probably do better in having gender diversity in our public face and, and we continue to try and work out what we can do about that. Okay, other questions from the audience? The mic's very high. Hi, this is Sharon Leon um, and I am currently at the center. And so what I want to ask um, primarily of, of, of Dan and Tom, now that you have um, moved on into very different kinds of environments. Um, the ways in which um, having spent sort of your formative years as digital history scholars and digi digital humanities scholars, how here, how that has um, shaped your management style and the way that you deal with the people who actually work for you in addition to with you. Right. 
Yeah, that's a great question. This this came up in one of the sessions earlier. I mean, I feel managerially as executive director of the Digital Public Library of America that I have, I think, fruitfully brought in this non-hierarchical method, I think, in a way that's been extremely helpful. We actually have great gender diversity in DPLA, um, other kinds of diversity as well. Um, and, um, and I really, I, I take it not just for the goodness of being non-hierarchical, I actually think it is the most effective way to manage in that um, we're a very young organization. We just launched 18 months ago. And I really, I need to hear in a very frank way from my staff about the kinds of things that they're hearing out across the country as we build this national digital library, um, what people are looking for, what, what our collaborators are interested in doing, what they're not interested in doing. And so our conversations feel a lot like, and I, why I'm excited about it, feel a lot like the early center where we were sort of trying to define ourselves of like, what are the things we're gonna do? Um, what are the things we're not going to do? Um, and so um, my new staff, um, they, I, I hope, like this idea that they can come to me. And we, we have really good straight up arguments that are really helpful in terms of thinking about new directions and new additions to this overall project that I think are very healthy. And that's something that I totally learned from the center um, and, and saw in effect in the center um, that, that I've been able to import. And I think that's not that whole managerial um, set of lessons I think has been underestimated because we, we do focus so much on specific kinds of projects. You know, Tom? What? Um, yeah, I, I, so I'm in a, as you said, I'm in a very different position where I'm um, trying to almost get something like the center started at a, at a university that doesn't have uh, really an organized um, digital humanities center yet. Um, we at UConn, we have People in the departments, you know, there are a few people doing interesting work in digital humanities, but it's uncoordinated and it's not institutionalized. Um, and so I, you know, I, I take, I think I, I mean, my touchstone is always um, Roy, Roy Rosenzweig. And um, I, I, you know, I, I take a couple of things. Um, and uh, both of them I heard earlier this morning. Um, from him to, to my, my work now. Um, you know, the first one is um, in trying to get something started, um, my method has become, and I think this is owes directly to Roy, is to get some interesting people who I know I want to work with around a table, um, whether we have a, a specific idea for a project or not, and people, you know, pe diverse people, people with different skills and backgrounds and interests. Um, and to, in a, again, in a very non-hierarchical way for everyone to sort of lay their wares on the table and to build something out of the skills in the room and to know that um, if you get a group of, you know, friends together, um, that there will be the, the, the necessary building blocks of a project. Um, and that you can do something with what's on the table. Um, so I bring that to, to, to my work now. Um, the other thing is, uh, uh, Steve, Steve Breyer said uh, this morning, um, Roy might have been one of the world's only um, uh, Marxist entrepreneurs. And, um, 
And I mean, I think that um, that entrepreneurial uh, bent, I think, um, is is the other thing that uh, the idea that you can take those ingredients and go and um, you know put them out into the world and build a project, um, and that ne you don't necessarily have to wait for permission. Um, and in fact, in some ways, it's better not to wait for permission. It's better to go and um, take your idea and bring it, um, bring it uh, out into the world, uh, and and trust in it, and trust in the the people you have around you, um, and and run with it, and to build, um, to not try to build the institution first, to try to do the work first, and that the in institution um, will will coalesce around the work. Um, so uh, those are two things that I, I just daily now in my new role I, I, I bring. So yeah, uh, the, the, the management style, it's, um, it's, it's, as you say, Dan, a, a hugely underestimated uh, 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 contribution that I think the center, center has made. Yeah, I mean, just one, one final gloss on this. I also feel that, um, you know, I think the fact that you can produce sort of something out of nothing, like Tom just said, is pretty is pretty cool. And I think the center has produced so many projects that really started from just, you know, a bunch of friends and their imagination. And I think everyone now at 20 years on sees this as like this massive place that has a global footprint and the center does. And yet all these things started off just as some idea, some crazy idea with like a new URL and, uh, and really inflated into that size. And I know everyone's, there's been a lot of people being down on the internet lately and just, you know, hating what life is like on Twitter and, and social media. And, uh, but I, I still think back to everything that the center's done and thinking about how all these wonderful things, they just sort of like came out of nowhere and had this tremendous impact. And I think you can still do that. And I take that to DPLA of, wow, we can just build this national digital library. We don't need anyone's permission. I think Tom's point on that is really critical. And you just get the right people together and set up the organization correctly. I think there's so much can flow out of that. And it is still a wonder of the internet that you can just put things out there. They reach everyone globally. That's part of the huge magic of of it and of open access to all these things uh, that we should keep in mind even when we're sour about it on occasion. Any other questions before we wrap up this 20th anniversary episode? I think we have one more coming in via the internet. I uh, just wanted to say there was quite the Twitter conspiracy about your, your lack of swag on the laptop. I, I, will, I will answer that. Um, <laughs> Yes, I know. I'm I'm embarrassingly um, naked um, compared to to Dan and Stephen here next to me. Um, no, no conspiracy. Uh, not making a statement. Um, just a relatively new computer. <laughs> All right. So you know what we've never had is we've never had swag for Digital Campus Podcast. This is our eighth year of podcasting. We still don't have a sticker for this. So I think by episode. 110 i believe this is 109 that we're recording right now so i think maybe before 200 yeah. we'll, we'll get a good t-shirt um let us know what you'd like to see digital campus swag wise but we certainly need a sticker for tom's laptop um
Well, thank you all for joining us. Always wonderful to be back here on campus and especially for this 20th anniversary of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media. And we are going straight from this to a reception where we will um, enjoy things even further and to enjoy the company of everyone that we've collaborated with for so many years. So thanks to all of you, our audience, our remote audience, for joining us on this edition of Digital Campus. And we will talk to you again next time. We have to fear is fear itself, fear itself, fear itself. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music.